This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Nothing can replace the experience of seeing history come alive, whether it be in a farm or a carpenter shop or some other authentic historic setting. The people doing this work, known as living historians, put great effort into it and are supported by a national organization, the Association for Living History, Farm, and Agricultural Museums, ALFAM, who are working hard to keep history alive and make the field more representative of the stories they tell. All topics perfect to learn from on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Kathy Dixon, who is the president of ALFAM. We're going to learn what that means and how to interpret and preserve history by doing it, the world of ALFAM, all those good things. Um, But Kathy, before we jump into that conversation and we learn more about the work and living history and interpretation, um, it's always good to get to know people. So tell us a little bit about your background, your upbringing, um, where'd you grow up, and how did you end up in this line of work? Was there a, a spark moment for you? Well, I grew up mostly in Oklahoma. I was born in Idaho, but um, was living in Oklahoma by the time I was five, I think. Uh, and my dad's family was from Oklahoma, so we have a long history here in Oklahoma. And um, like many people in my generation, you know, tail end of the baby boomers, I grew up on a farm. So we had the traditional family farm where, you know, I milked the cow before I went to school and milked the cow when I got home. And we had a huge garden and um, pretty much we lived off of what we grew, both um, animals and vegetables. So, um, and then my family was very much um, like many Uh, in that my children were the first generation that were not raised on a farm. And as I joked with my dad one time when I started dating someone who wasn't quite sure how to drive a tractor, I married him because I didn't want this moving back to the farm business because it was just too darn much work. But um, as I got into the museum field, which was not my original plan, um, my original plan, I, I was always interested in history. So um, I got a degree in history and English with an education certificate and planned on teaching high school history and English and coaching girls basketball. But then after I graduated, I was looking around for a summer job and I thought, you know, I don't know what this Oklahoma Historical Society is, but they ought to have something that somebody with a history degree could do. So I called them up and ended up getting a summer job. And it's been one really long summer because this May, I will have been there 43 years. Wow. So you've been with the, I was going to ask what your first job in the field was, but you're in a way you're still at your first job in the field. I mean, you've oh, yeah. obviously changed the jobs that you've done there, but you've been with the, are you one of the longest tenured employees? I believe I am probably the longest tenure in our history, and we started in 1893. At least I'm claiming that title until somebody can prove otherwise. Do you have a wing named after you yet? And, uh, no, it usually takes money to get a wing named after <laughs> you. And as people who work in this field know, it's not the most lucrative field around. But I would have to say that summer job was really kind of my spark moment. I thought, you know, this is, this is really fun. I enjoy doing this. And then I really kind of got involved in ALFAM um, about 1999 because as um, 
people were getting further away in their families from farming history, people didn't understand that life anymore. And so I started working on the idea of developing a living history farm here in Oklahoma because there wasn't one. And that's kind of what led me to ALFAM, which is the Association for Living History Farm and Agricultural Museums. And so what? tell us about that before we jump into ALFAM. Um, tell us about the farm and is that what you're still doing with the society? And is that... Where is that based? Give us the background on that on that site. Sure. Um, uh, my current job is director of museums and historic sites. So I have 26 properties around the state that I oversee. And one of those is a property in eastern Oklahoma in the Cherokee Nation called Hunter's Home. And it's an antebellum plantation style home where we are still in the process of developing a living history farm. Um, typical of the Cherokee Nation in the 1850s, so just before the Civil War. And how long have you been working on developing that? Um, I would have to say probably from the generation of the idea, it's probably been about 10 years. Um, but we've started um, you know, putting in some gardening. Um, we've been harvesting molasses and some crops like that, small crops, as well as we just uh, had our first marina lamb born on the property in probably 150 years. And is that a partnership with the Cherokee Nation? Uh, very much so. Um, they um, actively help fund the operations there, and we work very closely with them. That's really interesting. So if um, we can put a, a link in the show notes to that site and people to learn more about it and the, all the other sites that you manage. But let's let's talk about Alfam a little bit. So what is it? Who does it represent? How long has it been around? What's the What's the need for an organization like this? So Alfam actually organized in 1970, so it's been around for a while. And it's, it's as we say, an organization of people who bring history to life. So um, actively teaching hands-on skills that in many, time, many cases just will no longer exist in the outside world anymore. My first um, Alfam conference was a regional in 1999, and we actually butchered our own chickens and put them in the smokehouse for lunch. So, you know, that's that's a little different. You don't find that in a typical museum conference. Um, but the organization started out to focus on uh, living history farms and agricultural history, but in 1998, it really expanded its focus and changed to living history um, farms and um, agricultural museums. So it also brought in then different aspects of history that aren't necessarily agriculture related. So you have your first person interpretation. So there are workshops at conferences on how to do first person interpretation, how to make your costuming, um, cooperage. So how to make um, your barrels, Pretty much any skill you can think of, there's someone in Alfam that's doing it. And you're the president of the board of the organization. How long have you been involved in the board? Uh, well, I served a term on the board probably eight or so years ago. So this is my second term on the board. And I think it's interesting, you know, it's like um, people joke like, oh, like the, you know, the, I guess like the, the cynical go to is like they were, you know, the butter churning exhibit or whatever. Although I have to say, I took my daughter to Sturbridge Village um, this past summer in uh, Massachusetts and um, one of her favorite things was to churn the butter. So, I mean, you know, people can knock it, but don't knock it until you churn it. But um, I, uh, 
you know, I think sometimes people sort of are cynical about that or it's sort of like the butt of jokes and things like that. But in a lot of ways, it brings history to life for a lot of people. How how would you describe sort of this modern day world of living history and, and what kind of a draw is it for the public? Um, is it the big draw that it once was? Does it remain to be? Is it having a renaissance? What, what does the world of living history interpretation look like from your vantage point? I think the draw to the public is only continuing to grow. Um, there is nothing that brings an object to life more than seeing how it's actually used. Uh, if somebody comes out and looks at a plow, they if they've never plowed, they have no idea how that object works. And once they can put their hands on something or see somebody demonstrating something, they can they get a better idea of how it fits together. Um, an example I'll give you is um, we do a plowing competition every year at Alfam. And my first experience at the plowing competition was at um, actually the Firestone Village, <laughs> Firestone Farm in the, the Henry Ford Village. And, you know, my concept of plowing was always that, you know, the bigger the horse, the bigger, the, <laughs> the stronger the horse, the better it would be a plow behind. Well, I was plowing behind two big, huge Percherons, and they were just walking and I was jogging to keep up with them. So I quickly realized that when it comes to plowing, bigger was not necessarily better. So I think oxen are more my speed. And that's something you could only learn by actually doing it. Absolutely. That's something I could only learn by doing. Do you think, though, that, I mean, are is living history something that is sought out by the general public, do living history museums, are they doing better than sort of your more traditional behind glass museums? Do you guys know what the data on that looks like? Is the field growing? Is it shrinking? What's going on in living history? I think that I don't know that we have any hard data on it, but I think that it is growing. Um, people more and more, especially when you get millennials and younger, are looking for experiences and they are looking for hands on activities. They don't want to be lectured to. They don't want to go in and look at didactic labels. They want to have an active part in what's going on. And living history can provide that. Um, so for sites considering this kind of interpretation, um, maybe a, a site like the one you've described is kind of getting off the ground, or it's a, a site that previously sort of had a more traditional approach to interpretation is, is thinking about maybe doing this or, or at least doing it on, on some basis. Do you have advice? Um, is there, are there lessons learned, big kind of takeaways that should be shared with people thinking about that? Well, the first advice I would give them, of course, is to join Alfam. They're going to find a large group of people who are very knowledgeable and very willing to share their knowledge and share what, what went wrong, what went right, so that the people starting aren't making the same mistakes over again. So that would be the first advice I give. And the other one I would be to, you know, start out small. Don't think you're going to be doing living history every day, seven days a week when you're first trying to start out with this. Start with small events where you can do living history. And I wouldn't start with first person. Um, first person interpretation where you're actually taking on the role of historical character is extremely hard to do well. It's a great tool when you can do it well, but it is extremely hard to do well. And I don't know of very many sites that do a great job with first person. Um, one site that does, and I haven't been there in a few years, but 
maybe the best I've ever been to as far as first person with Plymouth Plantation. It's now Plymouth um, Patuxet in recognition of the native land that they're on. And when I visited there, it, I, I, I was amazed at the first person interpretation. And so I was thinking about why I thought it was so well done. And the conclusion I really came to is that none of the staff were trying too hard. Sometimes it's like, you know, you have your five things, you've got to make sure people understand. But they didn't seem to have that. It's just they just engaged with you wherever they were in their day and whatever tasks they were doing. They weren't trying to make you understand those those top of those five points that they got to get across. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that because in the back of my mind, as you were saying, the best site you've ever been to where they did it, that was what came to my mind. I've been there and um, it definitely felt very natural. It didn't feel forced and it didn't feel you didn't feel awkward going in and out of it. Um, it was sort of just like you were interacting with just regular humans who were just kind of living their day and just talking to you. And, 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 it, you know, in, in a, in a certain way, this, this is sort of a, an intersection of performance and, and history, right? I mean, in some ways you almost have to be an actor to be able to do some of this work. Yes, you do very much so, especially if you're doing first person. And, you know, Colonial Williamsburg um, does good first person, but theirs is more um, set pieces where you're going into a room and you're watching a performance as opposed to interacting with characters the way you do at Plymouth Plantation. Yeah, and that reduces some of the chances for um, disasters because you, you, don't yes, have to, you don't have to answer questions. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's that's a good way for people to start venturing into first person. Um, is to do those set stage pieces where people are basically watching a performance. Now, they do have some people who have just totally mastered their character, like Ron Carnegie, who does um, George Washington. He could engage with anyone anywhere and um, talk to him, be George Washington. He's, he's studied him for so long. Um, they have Bob Barker, who I think may have retired now. I did Thomas Jefferson, and he was just amazing. I mean, he just became Thomas Jefferson. So they do have a few of those characters that have, have studied many years. And speaking of living history and interpretation, and there's a lot of different flavors of it, but I'm curious, as the president of Alfam, um, what kind of living history work have you done? Do you still do it to keep your skills uh, sharp? And, and where do you practice it? Uh, well, at, at our different sites, actually, uh, next week, I will be down at Fort Towson, where I will be demonstrating natural dyes. So, um, yes, I do it occasionally. Um, I only do third person, unless we're doing a set stage piece where you're kind of memorizing a script. So um, I don't think I've ever really had the skills to do first person on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's a, it's a different animal. Well, why don't we take a break here, come back. Uh, talk about what's surprised you by doing some of this work and what surprised others. Um, and then talk about the, the future of living history, um, diversity in it, um, and what's next for you. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, 
The campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Kathy Dixon, who is the president of ALFAM. Uh, we've been talking all about the work of this organization that supports people doing and organizations doing the work of living history, farm, agricultural museums all across the country. Um, and we were talking about uh, advice for organizations that maybe are doing it. I'm curious, given your long history with it, um, given uh, all the people that you know in doing it, um, you know, you mentioned getting behind a Percheron is a different experience and you're more of an oxen speed person when it comes to plowing. And that was something you learned by doing. But are there other things that you really have been surprising or things that sort of the industry in general of living history has found out that maybe surprise sort of the more academic historians when they started doing the doing it, they realized it was different than perhaps what we thought? Well, I think there is really a whole field that is kind of called experimental archaeology because, um, you know, you can read a lot of history, but you don't really understand it and you, until you try and recreate what they were doing. And then you realize that um, how things had to work. For instance, one thing I will share with you is if you're wearing a corset, it's a good idea to lace your shoes up before you put your corset on. <laughs> And those are things you just learn by doing. Yeah. So are there implications or lessons for modern day America or the global world that we live in, in what's happening there? I mean, obviously it's a way to talk about the past, but are there people kind of pushing the boundaries on sustainable farming and what we can pick up from what was being done historically? Or is there, is that conversation being had within this world? Oh, there is. In fact, there is a movement um, in the Northeast and some other areas going back to um, horse-drawn farm equipment. Of course, it doesn't work for the thousand-acre wheat farms we have out here in Oklahoma, but when they're doing what we'd call truck patch farming, you know, your vegetable market, those type of things, it's actually much more economical, they're finding, for them to do that with um um, animal powered equipment as opposed to tractors, which, you know, these days cost, you know, well over a hundred thousand dollars. And so really the only reservoir of knowledge when it comes to a lot of that is in the living history world, I would imagine, or at least it's a good chunk of it. Have they, as the, as the living history world kind of crossed over into modern sustainable farming and trying to help teach that? It has uh, in many ways. And, and during the pandemic, one of the things that, um, was very interesting. There were several historical farms that, you know, when the pandemic first started, they shut down to the public as most places did. But um, like the Howell Living History Farm in New Jersey reached out to their county and they actually, instead of doing their historical farming, started doing actual production farming and providing food to their food banks. So sort of a full circle moment that I'm sure the living history community is pretty proud of. Speaking of kind of being proud, um, are you, I mean, we talked a little bit about the future of living history. Are you optimistic about it? Is there a new generation ready to take the lead? It always seems like 
um, museums and preservationists and people kind of wring their hands about where, you know, the future of these industries will be. Um, are you optimistic about it? What, and if so, what, what gives you hope? Are, are, are you? Oh, I am very optimistic about it. Just within Alfam, we have so many young people that it's just amazing the amount of knowledge and skills that they already have. They are so far beyond where um, I think my generation was at their age. So uh, I'm very optimistic for the future. What we do honestly need to work on is the diversity in living history because um, it is overwhelmingly white faces that you see doing living history. And we have really got to work on um, diversifying those roles that we portray. Are there any bright spots in that? Well, there's always bright spots. There's um, a group, and gosh, I'm going to forget their name, the Slave Drilling Project. Right. Where uh, and There is um, a Facebook group where a group of uh, reenactors have organized themselves that are called the Sons and Daughters of Ham. And uh, they are out doing living history programs around the country. So there are certainly bright spots, but it's something that we very definitely need to work on. And part of that is providing them with training and protections, I should say, in their interaction with the public, because it's not always pleasant. Right. We had a, a woman on previously who worked at a, a plantation um, and gained some notoriety in the New York Times about the questions that she received at that plantation about slavery. Um, she was a young woman of color and um, sort of the, 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 the very aggressive and in some ways, um, uh, really offensive questions that were received by her about slavery, which kind of underscored people's just on, you know, the, the, the lack of knowledge about how slavery worked. Um, but also that this was a real human being that they were asking questions of. Um, so I'm sure that, that they run into that, um, that people of color run into that when working at, at historic sites, um, and doing this kind of work. Um, and, is, so is there, you know, in providing that kind of safe space and that protection, have you guys at Alfam talked about that? Is there sort of a, a focused work on diversity? Yes, um, we've done a lot of training sessions on it, but there's still a lot of work to be done because our membership right now is is overwhelmingly white and we need to change that. Yeah, and it seems like, the, you know, interestingly, what you mentioned doing work in partnership with the Cherokee Nation um, is, is a an example of diversification of the field. Do the Cherokee people participate in the living history side of it as well? Uh, they have, um, and they, they use our site to film a lot of their programming. They have their own uh, uh, TV studio called OCO, and they do a lot of filming of historical projects at our properties. Very interesting. So what's next for you? What are you working on uh, in year 44 with the uh, Oklahoma Historical Society? Oh, well, right now my focus is on um, we are we are a state agency, so we're working on trying to get a forty-six million dollar bond issue through the legislature to take care of um, repair and maintenance needs around the state. And would that be pretty large um, compared to what you've received previously? Oh uh, well, our repair and maintenance budget right now is seven hundred thousand a year for twenty-six sites, so that's pretty dismal. So yeah, it would be huge. Yeah, seven hundred thousand won't won't get you very. Uh, that might just uh, buy, you know, lumber for one site. Right. Um, so we do we do a lot of fundraising and we raise a lot of money. <laughs> very interesting. Um, so um, 
if you had to pick a favorite historic place or site, I know that's a hard question for most people, but do you have one that um, captures your heart? Oh, gosh, that is really hard. Can I give you a top five? It's hard to say just one. I suppose you could. And I probably have to stay away from Oklahoma since, you know, I supervise so many of them. I get myself in trouble. It's like picking your favorite kid. I think that's smart. Um, But Mount Vernon is one of, certainly one of the top. Um, Surbridge Village in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Really like that one. Um, Heritage Park in Alberta, Canada. And um, the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. Mm Mm-hmm. They've done a great job really just focusing their interpretation on the enslaved population there and not so much the the white owners of the house. And they they did that really kind of before it became a trend across the country. So I've been very impressed with what they've been doing. Yeah, Whitney Plantation is, is an incredible place, as are the rest that you mentioned. I've actually been to all except for the one in Alberta. So I guess and I'll you know, have to they- add, add that to my list. These are all, you know, big sites, but, you know, you can always find just these little treasures um, that maybe you never heard of when you're driving by. We have um, in Oklahoma, the Sod House Museum, and it's just what it sounds like. It is a sod house that was built in 1893, and it still survives, and it's just this, this magnificent treasure when you stop and look at it. You will never see that anywhere else. That's fascinating. I'd love to get to your get to your sod house. And is that one in your collection or is that a private entity? No, it is it's part of it is one of our sites, but it's just it's in an out of the way spot. So it doesn't get a ton of visitation, but it's just this little treasure out there. Well, I hope you get your bond issuance so you can fix the sod house, sod house and all the rest of them. Um, it's been interesting talking with you. We'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes to Alfam so that people can get more acquainted with the organization. Um, learn about your efforts uh, to help and inform the future um, and um, the diversification efforts of the industry as well. And I want to thank you for joining us today on PreserveCast. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.